That's, that's an incredibly helpful song for a number of reasons, but one of them is because of how it, it those last couple of stanzas, did you notice how the, uh, the songwriter talked about how uh, there's so much in this world that seems so wrong, and, and, but God is still God, and he's still at work. <clears throat> Anyhow, that, that actually ties into this message really well. We're going to be looking at Psalm 8, so if you haven't already, go ahead and turn in your Bible to Psalm 8. And what the, the psalmist will be talking about is, as you can see on the title, a God-given glory versus a man-made glory. And that man-made glory ties into that, that idea that this world seems so often so wrong. And the psalmist, David, is going to paint a beautiful picture of how the world should be and even how it can be here and right now. And uh, he's, he's going to talk largely about work. Did you notice when you were hearing the Psalm 8 being read, there was a part that sounded, that was mentioning all the different animals. And it was saying how God gives us dominion over all the different animals. And... Did that remind you of Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse 28, where, where God has, is giving his creation mandate? And he's, he's telling Adam and Eve what the, their work will look like. And so this whole psalm is really tied around the idea of work and, and what it, what, like how, how to do it well. Now, this, this has uh, been really encouraging for me because if you're like me and you might have tried making New Year's resolutions before, this time of year is right about the point where you're realizing how well or poorly you're doing. And if you did make a New Year's resolution, chances are it had to do with some aspect of your work. And like the psalmist is going to say, work that God, in God's eyes isn't just the professional workforce, but it includes any and every kind of work that you have. And what this psalm is going to do, he's not, David is not so much going to tell you how to work. He's more going to tell you about the mindset you need, which is really good because most of the time our New Year's resolutions have to do with the very nitty-gritty, okay, I'm going to achieve this, I'm going to get this done, and I'm, I'm going to do this and that. What David is going to give us is the mindset we need. So before we begin, we'll go ahead and Start with prayer and ask the Lord to open our minds and hearts. So please bow your heads. Oh, Lord, thank you for this new year and for the work that you have already prepared for each one of us to do. It's exciting to think that we are your workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which you have before ordained that we should walk in them. We don't deserve that kind of attention from you. So... As we read and meditate on this psalm, we ask that you would speak to us, give us insight into your design for work so that we will give you the glory that you deserve. Amen. Ever since I was a, a, a child, even, uh, New Year's family get-togethers were incredibly stressful for me. And it wasn't so much because of my relatives, it more had to do with the kind of questions that my relatives would ask me. So I grew up homeschooled, 
which means they were especially concerned that uh, I have a promising future. So they'd be asking me, how's your school going? What, what, what career do you want to have for the rest of your life? And you know, what are you doing to achieve that? And, and it would be a lot of pressure. And I would, well, like I said, it would be very stressful. So for me, it came to a head at one point where I thought, okay, I need to figure this out so that I can get their approval, so that I can, I can have meaning, because that seems to be what people are by and large measured by. So uh, I think in my head, okay, what, what, what kind of job can I, will I enjoy for the next 30 to 40 years? What kind of job will I be passionate about? And then what kind of job will be respectable to my family and my relatives? And after thinking of all of that, I, I finally arrive, okay, I'm going to join the military because that, that'll just cover all those bases. So what I was looking for was a kind of a glory. Now, if you asked me at the time, I wouldn't have said no. I'm not, I would have said I'm not looking for glory. And if you told me, you know, work is really about glorifying God, not yourself, I would have said, yeah, of course, of course, I believe in that. But when it came down to it, what I was really depending on for dignity, for meaning, for glory, was being impressive. Something that would impress me, something to impress my relatives, something that would satisfy me, and it was very man-made, very self-centered. So we get to the party, and sure enough, my grandma and grandpa and my uncle and aunts are coming up to me and they're asking me, and as soon as I tell them that I'm interested in joining the Air Force, faces brighten, people smile, they get excited, and I feel like I have meaning. I feel like I've achieved something. And so that experience you might relate with, you might not, but you probably at least relate with the core of my experience. And that is, that is sometimes... Sometimes you feel like your work lets you down because it doesn't give you glory. And you might not be thinking, oh, I, I want all the glory, but work just isn't satisfying. It's just not meaningful because you're not getting meaning from it. And what the psalmist is going to do is he's going to show us how glory in work is actually God-given not man-made. And when that sinks in, it will transform the way you think about work. So let's get into this psalm. The, the first big idea that I'm seeing in this psalm is that the Lord displays his fame through unimpressive worshipers. And if you look at Verse 1, you see it, he says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. Which is very interesting. For a psalm about work, that's where he's going to go, he starts it off by not answering the question, how can I have satisfying work? He starts it off by ask, answering the question, what's this world all about? And he says, it's all about God setting his glory on display. And if, if you start with the question, your focus is, to, how can I be happy with work? Happiness is like a wet bar of soap. 
the more you grasp after it, the more it pops right out of your hand. If, if, you, if you aim for happiness and, and maybe God alongside, you're going to wind up getting neither. But if you aim for God, you'll actually wind up getting both. And that's what the psalmist is doing for us here. He's focusing first on the Lord. But look how he says, oh, Lord. You see how it's all caps? You probably already know this, but this is referring to Yahweh, specifically God's covenant name. And for the Jewish people, as they're, as they're hearing this read, they would, they would all, all the memories would come back to their mind of Israel's sordid history with God and how there were ups and there were downs and then there were really downs, but God always was true to his covenant. He initiated a covenant not because Israel was better than all the nations, bigger than all the other nations, or anything like that, but simply because God is God. And he made a covenant promise with them, and he keeps it. And that's what David wants to call to mind. As people are getting ready to praise God with him, he's saying, Oh, Yahweh, remember him? And then the next thing he says is, Our Lord the lower, lower uh, case form of Lord refers to the word Adonai, which has to do with God's lordship, his authority. And, and this, is, this is the whole other side of his attributes, of his character, is that he has authority over everything, every nitty-gritty thing in your life and in my life. And, and what the psalmist does here very skillfully is he captures every single, every single kind of God-fearer there is. Because, think about it, there's a, Christians tend to fall into one, at least one of two categories, or they gravitate towards one, don't they? Typically, they like to think of God as a covenant keeper. He's gracious. He initiates grace and forgiveness. And he's kind. But then... A lot of other times you'll have other people say, well, but he's holy and he's righteous and he commands things and he deserves obedience. And David says yes to both. And if you, if, if you, if you separate those things from God, then what you've done is we're not talking about the same God anymore. And what you need to do is you need to see God in his fullness. Oh, Lord, our Lord. O covenant keeper, our authority. And then that's when he goes in and he says, how excellent, how amazing, how marvelous is thy name. For David, when he talks about name, the concept here really is reputation. When you make a name for yourself, we're talking about your reputation. And what David is saying is, your name, your reputation, your fame, is all in all the earth, all across the globe. And he says, who has set thy glory, there's that word, above the heavens. That's, that's how he introduces it. And actually, that's how he's going to end it as well. Because what David is doing is here, he's, he's, uh, he's bookending this psalm with this reality. He starts us off with it. And then he's going he's gonna to take us through the little details. And then when we come back to this, this verse in verse 9, we're going to have a new specific understanding 
of how God's glory is in all the earth and how his fame goes out. So that raises the question, how is it that God's fame is in all his creation? How is that? Well, that's verse 2. He says, Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. Out of the mouth of babes. You've heard this, you've heard this verse before in the New Testament, haven't you? Do you remember when Jesus, uh, he's, he's come and he's, he's purged the temple. He's, he's, he's frustrated because the religious leaders have turned his temple into a den of thieves. And so he, he upends everything. And, and then he starts healing people. And then the very next thing that happens, according to to Matthew, is that a a group of little kids sees exactly what goes on, and they're amazed. And their response is, this is the son of David. This is the Messiah. He's coming, and he's here. This is amazing. And they start singing his praises, just singing and singing and singing like kids do. And then the religious leaders get really frustrated, because not only has, has Jesus turned over their temple and everything, disrupted their worship. Now these kids are disrupting their worship. And that frustrates the religious leaders. And Jesus says, haven't you read the Bible, essentially? Haven't you read the scriptures? And he quotes this passage here. He says, out of the mouth of babes and sucklings, God perfects praise. And And the way Jesus applies it is he's saying these little kids are like the babes and sucklings. Not literally babes and sucklings, but you know what I mean. And then he says, well, he doesn't say this explicitly, but in the context he's saying, and you religious leaders, you're the enemies. You're the avengers. And God is using their beautiful praise, their childlike praise, to silence you. And you don't like it. And in that passage in Matthew... That's, that's the last of his interaction with those, those uh, religious leaders. He leaves them. He goes somewhere else. It's the ultimate sentence of judgment. Here, what David has in mind is that God's people are like babes, like, like sucklings. And what do you know about them? Well, they're, they're cute, but they're also helpless, and they're needy. And they, what comes out of their mouth Usually not fantastic things come out of babies' mouths. <laughs> Either it's crying or, 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 or spit up. Or, but, but what you've got with kids, though, is sometimes they coo, and sometimes they look into, up into their mother's face or their father's face, and, and all they can do is enjoy their parents. And it, it's, it's mesmerizing, isn't it? That's what he's talking about. And he's saying, God ordains strength in that. There's something powerful about that. When we weak, unimpressive Christians praise God, there's something that somehow God ordains strength in that. Why? Because of thine enemies. And this gets to the reality that we live in a fallen world. God has enemies. There are skeptics, people who doubt his very existence, people who even claim they're loyal to him but don't represent him the way he wants to be represented. 
And these people are enemies. They might not even think of themselves as enemies. But David is saying that God has enemies. And because of that, he chooses to overcome his enemies, not by just smiting them with his fist, but silencing them with, with our unimpressive praise, what comes out of our mouth. He even says that they might as still the enemy and the avenger. The avenger in this context is someone who, well, what, what do you think of when you think of avenger? It's someone who retaliates. It's someone who thinks they've been mistreated. God's done them wrong. And so they say, well, you know what? I'm going to reject the fact that you've made a covenant, that you open your covenant to me if I'll accept it and trust in you. I'm going to reject the fact that you're an authority. I don't like your, you telling me what to do. And and I'm going to bite back. I might even bite back at your people. And, and David is saying, God silences them. It's actually the word for Sabbath. He puts them to rest. <laughs> he shuts them up. And so this verse 2 functions almost like um, a summary of the whole psalm. It's setting the stage very generally on how God... You know, O Lord, our Lord, takes his fame and puts it all throughout the earth. How does he do it? Through unimpressive people that follow him. That's what he gets at. And then that's when we roll into verse 3, where he starts to unpack this just a little bit more specifically. Now David is, maybe he himself right now, while he's writing this, is looking up at a night sky, because you don't see any mention of the sun, just moon and stars. And he says, when I consider thy heavens... The work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars, which thou hast ordained. He's, he's thinking about the heavens, the sky. And it's, he's talking about God's fingers in the sky, like massive fingers, arranging each little star like a jeweler, putting diamonds in their setting in a backdrop of velvet. And they're beautiful. And they're huge. And God ordains them. And he says, what is man that, that thou art mindful of him? <clears throat> and the son of man that thou visitest him. He's saying, why do you even think about us? You've got, you've got stars and the moon and they're, they're beautiful. And here we are down in the dirt. The word for mindful, he, it actually is the same word that, um, that is what God, what God is described as being for Noah when God takes action on his covenant, when he remembers Noah. He's mindful of him, and he goes and takes action to rescue him. For the Jew, this would call back memories again of God's covenant-keeping character. It's not just that God thinks about mankind but that he even enters into covenant action, rescuing them. And David is, is saying, why? We are unimpressive compared to the stars. And that thou visitest him? Your presence is, is, is attentively there with him? That's amazing for, for him. So, so for David... He starts off us, before we even get to thinking about work, he starts us by reminding us of what a humble situation we're in 
if you want to understand work, helpfully, you need to understand, one, it's not about you. And that it is a gift from God. And that you, you are the babe. You are the suckling. You are in a humble situation. But to really get into, into understanding this psalm, I've got a new computer here, and I'm still figuring it out. Let me access my notes here. Um, to really understand this psalm, we're going to need to understand more about the fallen condition. We know that, that this world is fallen, that there are enemies, but we also know that sometimes when we think about God's presence with us, his attentive care, for some people, actually, it, even for some Christians, his attentive care can feel like torture. Why? Because when it comes to work or even any other aspect of their life, they know how they fail God. It's not just that we're unimpressive compared to the stars, but we even sin against God over and over and over again. And how do you process that? If you, if you don't know how to process that, then it becomes torture. Do you remember Job? You remember when he's, he, his friends come to visit him after he's suffering so much, and they're saying, it's because you sinned. It's because God is judging you. And, and Job is trying to defend himself. I don't think I did anything particularly bad. But then Job comes to a place where he starts questioning that in chapter 7. And Job says something remarkably similar to this very psalm. He says, what is man, this is Job chapter 7, verse 17, what is man that thou shouldest magnify him, and that thou shouldest set thine heart upon him, and that thou shouldest visit him every morning, and try him every moment? How long wilt thou not depart from me, nor let me alone till I can swallow down my spittle? And he says, I have sinned. What shall I do unto thee, O thou preserver of men? David feels, or uh, uh, Job felt his guilt. And, and the more he felt his guilt, the more scary God's presence became. And the more he wanted to distance himself, say, God, just let me have enough time to swallow my own spit. And that's how it can be when you're really feeling your failure. Do you remember Martin Luther, who was really caught up in the Roman Catholic system hundreds of years ago, and his conscience was so riddled with guilt. Why? Because the, the Roman Catholic system at the heart of it, especially back then, taught that if you want favor with God, you have to go through these sacraments. You have to perform these perfectly and then not sin. And if you do, you got to do them all over again. And, and for Luther, he felt that. And so he would frequently come to his priest to confess his sins. And, and it got to the point where it was so meticulous. Luther was so specific about every little, little, itty-bitty sin that his priest would even say, you're, you're going a little too far here. You need to, you need to calm down. <laughs> and, and one priest actually says to him, Luther... Do you love God? And Luther would say to him, Love God? 
Sometimes I hate God. Because for Luther, when Luther was so profoundly aware of his own sin and brokenness, God's closeness and attentiveness to him was devastating. It was torture. And for Luther, it wasn't until he started studying Romans when he learned about Paul saying, the righteousness of God is not something you achieve. The righteousness of God is something he gives you just by you believing in him and you trusting him. That for Luther, the lights went on. The glory of the gospel was beautiful to him. And that's what changed. And so for us, when we... When we go to apply this passage to ourselves, we need to first come to grips with, do we think of ourselves as babes and sucklings when it comes to work? Do we, do we fully acknowledge that we not only are unimpressive, but that we, we even have sinned against God? And that work cannot be about us making us feel better about ourselves or even making it up back to God. That cannot be what work is all about. Instead, this would be the second thing that you need to think of is, think of God as a covenant-keeping God. He's the one who initiates with you. He's the one who takes action. And he will faithfully do that no matter how much you fall. But that very covenant loyalty is supposed to remind you that he's also Lord of your life. And that should inspire you to live even more holy, to work even harder, to do better, to care for the people that are, you are responsible for. So that's, that's the first half of this psalm. And so far, David's been meditating on how God generally displays glory through small people. But how specifically does he, does he display his glory throughout all the earth? Second point here is that the Lord displays his fame through unimpressive workers. This is where we'll get to work. You see in verse 5 where he says, For thou hast made him a little lower than angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. This is where David is saying, you've, you've made us just a little lower than angels when it comes to responsibility, and when it comes to how you've designed us in your image. And he's saying, that's amazing. We don't deserve that. He says, and has crowned him with glory and honor. Now, how do you feel about that? I remember when I was first studying this, when I thought, okay, how would I preach that? Am, am I literally going to say that God glorifies humanity? Normally, that's something I expect to hear from Joel Osteen or a prosperity preacher. But I'm hearing David say something like this. What is it? I, I'm not comfortable with the idea of God crowning me with glory and honor. A crown, like the one he wears. Glory, like he just said in verse 1, God has and is displaying throughout all the earth. And the more I meditated on that, the more I, I came to realize if I'm feeling, I don't deserve that. I'm not supposed to get glory. That's where David would probably say, that's the point. It's not about you. This is the reality that God does this kind of thing. 
He's pleased to give glory, to give dignity to people who don't deserve it. Not because they deserve it, not because they're glorious, but this is the kind of God he is. And, and when he crowns them, you need to think of crown as like a sign of kingship. We are like under kings. That's what he's saying. And he crowns us with what? Glory and honor. Okay, but in what sense? What, what's glory and honor? All right, well, look at the next verse. He says, Thou hast made him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. That is the crown of glory and honor. Dominion. We have authority. God designed us this way. And it is an honor to have this authority and responsibility over different things in our lives. But what do we have authority over? Do you notice he, he says... All sheep and oxen, yea, the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the sea. He, he says for, for, for David, he's going through every single aspect of, well, virtually every major category of created animals. You probably don't deal a whole lot, most of you probably don't deal a whole lot in your work with animals. Maybe you do, and I don't know. But that's not David's point. He's not saying that every single human is responsible and must focus his, his or her life on animals. This is a poetic way of saying every aspect of creation, every work there is to be had that is good, is yours as a crown of glory. So, if you're a teenager and you and school is your primary work right now, that's, that's what God has given you. And it challenges teenagers. I'm not seeing too many teenagers in this congregation right now, so I'm actually going to change things up. Um, I was going to apply this to teenagers, but I'm going to take this time actually instead to talk to you guys as... Uh, um, non-teenager to non-teenager. <laughs> For a lot of teens, it really is hard to think about work. And a lot of us, when we see them apathetic and like they just don't care, what is wrong with them? It can be really frustrating. And our response can, be, can range anything from, well, our response is usually an appeal, right? We appeal to something in order to persuade them to get serious about getting a job, or do anything, go to college, do, you know, I don't care, go to trade school. What do we appeal to, though? We could appeal to, look, if you want to mean anything in this life, you want to make a name for yourself, you need to get a job, you need to go to school. But what is that appealing to? Do you see how that's appealing to their sense of pride? And how that's totally the opposite of what this psalm is getting at. Work is not about you and your making a name. You could also appeal to their sense of preservation, self-preservation. Look, you're going to starve because your parents aren't going to take care of you for the rest of your life. <laughs> you need to get out there and go get a job. Again, that's that's, that's worth considering for sure. But you see, in the priority of things, 
what God is most intensely concerned about is that teenagers understand that work is an honor, it is a gift from God that they don't deserve. And that, that when we look in our lives at what's worth putting effort into, what's worth magnifying, what's worth representing, that God deserves all of that. How do we know? Because he sent his own son to die for us. Could he have done anything more? That might sound like, well, that's basic. That's trite. That's not trite. That is, for, for a believer, that is the single most motivating thing in this life. That you did not deserve God in the least. And he, if, if he carried out justice in full, should have hated you should have turned his back on you, but instead turned his back on his son so that he would never turn his back on you. For teens, that's what you need to set up for them as the most beautiful reason for doing any kind of work. And it, you'll, you'll find if, if God is working in them, that will be attractive to them. That will be persuasive. It will take a lot of hearing them out, of course, understanding what their fears are, what their insecurities are, Maybe they have a unique, I mean, every, every teenager has a unique fear of, of work. Like, what if I fail? What if I'm not able to achieve this and that? What if, what if I'm not happy with it 10 years down the road? And I spent four years in college and wasted all that time? That's a fear that teens face. And what you can comfort them with is a reality that's greater than, well, you can go back to school. <laughs> or, well, you just got to stick with it because work is work, you know? You know, you, uh, you work till it's Friday and then you get a weekend, you know, <laughs> unless you work in retail. In that case, no. Um, that is such a mundane view of, of work. And that's not what we want to be painting for our teens. That's not the picture. The picture David paints is that work is not mundane. There's really no such thing as mundane work. There's only mundane views of work. And what he's telling us is that this is, this is God's gift to you when you don't deserve it. And when you work, you put his creativity, his beauty on display. And when you do, remember verse 2, it silences skeptics. What can they say to it? Oh, philosophical views, I don't believe in that. Look, it's actually working. Um, it's meaningful. It's real. And it explains your innermost fears and insecurities. Okay, so that's... That's some thoughts on how to apply this to teens. For, for those of you who are in the workforce, for those of you who are um, even retirees, for you, it's actually a lot of the same applications for the teens. If you're in the workforce right now, it can be really easy to get focused in the uh, pursuit of just advancement, bettering yourself. You'll feel insecure if you're, if you're focused on making work all about you, you'll, you'll, if your boss doesn't acknowledge you, it'll frustrate you. How dare they not acknowledge me? I was able to do this. Or, or you'll explain away your mistakes. You'll be so sensitive, you can never admit you made a mistake at work. And so, well, there were extenuating circumstances. I, I, I have good reasons for why I couldn't do what I did. If you take this view, the more this view, this mindset of work sinks into you, 
it will actually give you thick skin, thick skin enough to admit you made mistakes. Because you're the baby, you're the suckling. Of course you make mistakes. But look at God's covenant-keeping character. He's faithful to you. And that should inspire you and push you to work harder, to work more helpfully, to work more creatively. Um, And then briefly, for retirees, I'm going through everyone because I'm thinking, you know what? I think this is what David would have wanted. He goes through every single aspect of work. For retirees, work, you've got a new relationship with work by and large. Work for you might be something you look back on, and it might be a source of nagging regrets. You might be wondering, was that it? I I was hoping I could accomplish so much more. But in this view of work, you see that God was working through you. Your work had dignity, whether you feel like it or not. God doesn't leave anything in his economy of, of accomplishment. He uses everything that you do. And even right now, retirement isn't what the world promised it to you. It's not an extended vacation for the rest of your life. (laughs) Retirement with God is more opportunity just to change the kind of work you do. Now you might be pouring your life into people, especially in the church, your own church family. You remember Titus 2, how Paul's vision for the church is older men and older women pouring their lives into younger men and younger women. And it, and it totally changes this community from, this is the, the island of Crete that we were talking about in, in Titus, from a, a, an island of liars to an island of people who depend on the truth that God gives us salvation when we don't deserve it. And it shapes every aspect of our life. So, no matter where you are in reference to work, even, even work that isn't non-traditional work, view it the way David views it. View it as God's undeserved gift that silences his own enemies. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much for work, for all kinds of work. We do not deserve that as a gift. Keep us from using it as, uh, as a source of self-glory and help us to see where we do use that in, in subtle ways that we might not even know about. And then help us to see how far better it is to see work as a gift from you that magnifies your beauty, sets you on display, both in your covenant-keeping character and in your covenant-ruling character. And we pray that we would rejoice in you and that we would submit to you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.